Well, good evening once again. Tonight we'll be looking at Colossians 1, verses 1 through 8, if you'd like to turn there with me. I'm excited to be starting this series through Colossians. Um, I've already had a great time studying this book, and I pray that over the next several months, as I get the chance to exhort, that the Lord would use this letter to bless you as well. So again, we'll be reading the first eight verses. Let us now give our full attention to the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Would you pray with me now that God would bless to us the reading and proclaiming of his word tonight? O God, since we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth, make us hunger for this heavenly food, that it may nourish us even this evening. Amen. Now, we're going to have a little challenge, and it's a difficult one, so there might be a prize in it for anyone who's able to succeed, but... I'm going to read a short passage from an ancient text, and I'd like you all to make a guess in your heads what that text might be. So here we go. And then two figures like men lifted me up to the seventh heaven, and there I saw a very great light and fiery troops of archangels, spiritual forces and dominions, orders and governments, cherubim and seraphim, thrones and figures with many eyes, nine regiments, the stations of light. I became afraid and began to tremble with great terror. Those men took me and led me after them and said to me, Have courage and do not fear. They showed me the Lord sitting on his very high throne at a distance. And all the heavenly troops would come and stand on the ten steps according to their rank and would bow down to the Lord and would return to their places in joy and happiness, singing songs in the boundless light with small and tender voices, gloriously serving him. Anybody? <laughs> it's pretty strange, right? Uh, you might be thinking, is that Ezekiel or Daniel or maybe a part of Revelation? I'm not remembering. Well, to tell the truth, it's actually not from the Bible at all. Uh, what I just read was an excerpt from a first century Jewish text called Second Enoch. And as strange as it may seem to us, that kind of visionary experience described in what I just read was the goal of many Jews at the time of the apostles. There were certain schools within Judaism whose entire goal was to make these ascents up to heaven and witness the worship that took place before the throne or the chariot of God. Now, why am I telling you this? What does this have to do with anything? Well, this was the kind of thing that certain false teachers were trying to promote to the church at Colossae. And we'll see as we go through this letter over the next several months that Paul is trying to show the Colossians it really isn't about ascending into heaven because there is one who has descended from heaven to earth, 
namely Jesus Christ. So as we look at this first passage tonight, we'll see that what Paul's doing in these first eight verses is letting the Colossian church know that because of the gospel, they have a hope stored up for them in heaven, which is the cause of their expression of faith in Christ and their love for one another. And that message holds true for us as well. So we'll walk through these eight verses tonight, looking closely at the two sections of this opening, the greeting in verses one and two, and the thanksgiving section in verses three through eight. But before turning to the actual text, let's spend a few moments talking a little bit about the background of Colossians. So one of the most important questions we can ask with any text is, who wrote it? Who's the author? And as I've given away already, Paul, the apostle, was the author of this letter. So the next question is, when did he write it? Now, we can't be exactly sure of the date or the place of the writing, but considering everything we know both from Colossians itself, especially the people Paul mentions, and what we know from the book of Acts, it's most likely that Paul wrote this letter sometime between A.D. 60 and 62 while he was in prison in Rome. But who did he send it to? What do we know about its destination? Paul sent this letter to Colossae, as you may have guessed from the name. And that's a city located in modern-day Turkey, about 100 miles east of the Aegean Sea, if you know your geography. And the population of Colossae at the time was very diverse. Uh, Most of the people who lived there were Gentiles of various ethnic backgrounds. But there were also a significant amount of Jews who resided in Colossae. And that Jewish portion of the population becomes very important as we look at the reason why Paul wrote the letter. So deciding on the occasion or what caused Paul to send this letter to the church in Colossae, that's where the biggest debate happens with this letter. Everyone agrees that Paul was writing against some sort of false teaching. But what exactly that false teaching was there's great disagreement. And this is definitely a significant issue. Don't get me wrong. It, it colors the way we read the epistle. But I think it's also important to say this. No matter what error was facing the Colossian church, the most significant thing is Paul's response. What he tells the Colossians about Christ, the gospel, new creation, and the Christian life, that's what the real takeaway is. There are additional details we can understand by knowing what the false teachers were saying, and I'll certainly try to bring those out as we go through the letter. But in the end, even if I or no one else really ever knows what the Colossian error was, the truths that Paul wrote in response still stand. So with that sort of disclaimer in mind, I'll briefly give you the theory that I think makes the most sense of all the evidence we have, especially what Paul writes in Colossians itself, but also considering other sources, like the one I read at the beginning. So, the false teachers challenging the Colossian church were most likely Jewish mystics who emphasized heavenly ascents and otherworldly experiences, especially the worship that angels offered to God. So, as we go through the letter over the next several months, I'll I'll bring up the specific teachings of this false doctrine as Paul makes his case against them. So with that introductory information in the back of our minds, we'll be able to more fruitfully move into our exposition of the epistle, and particularly this evening's passage, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. So 
in the first two verses of this letter, Paul is going to identify both himself and his recipients in terms of their relationship with Christ. Let's reread verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. In this one short sentence, Paul identifies the messenger, the recipients, and the primary message of the whole letter. So first, he identifies who he is with three important phrases. Number one, he is an apostle. Paul is using this word to describe his official capacity within the church. An apostle was an ambassador for the kingdom of Christ who had seen the resurrected Christ in person, received his commission directly from him, and possessed the power of doing miracles to confirm the truth of his mission. And Paul meets all of these requirements, and he highlights his apostolic office in order to assure the Colossians that the letter they receive from him carries divine authority. In other words, Paul's apostolic authority represents the very authority of Christ. And that leads us to the second phrase Paul uses, of Christ Jesus. This phrase made it absolutely clear that Paul was called by Christ, belongs to Christ, and was in Christ's service. And the final part of his self-description here at the beginning is according to the will of God. Once again, we're reminded that Paul is not writing letters just for fun or because he really likes to get in arguments and be right. No, this phrase highlights God's role behind Paul's ministry. He's the one who directly called him, and thus he is the one who authenticates the gospel that Paul preaches. This is not a private letter expressing Paul's personal opinions. Because he has been appointed by the will of God, this letter is authoritative and an unfailing expression of God's will for the Colossians and by application for all Christians in all times and places. So, Paul, the apostle of Christ Jesus, is the one writing this letter. But who is he writing to? And in one sense, we already answered this question in the introduction. He's writing to the church at Colossae. But notice how he describes his recipients. He uses the two terms, saints and faithful brothers, to address the Colossian Christians. So first, let's think about what Paul means when he uses the word saints. Now, when we hear that, we might think of uh, black and gold and a football team in New Orleans. Uh, Or if you're a little closer to the right area, you might think of uh, a wrinkly, malnourished man or woman who's achieved some sort of great spiritual success or ethical purity. But that's not at all how Paul is using the word here. In his other letters and this letter, Paul uses the word saints to not point to the moral achievements of people, but to those who are the elect of God, chosen and set apart by him. And by the way, this isn't just a New Testament word. The Old Testament also uses the word saint in verses like Psalm 16.3. And there it's used to refer specifically to the people of Israel. They were the nation chosen and set apart by God. But here, Paul intentionally includes Gentile Christians under that term saints, showing that the new covenant people are not ethnically defined. Both Jews and Gentiles who trust in Christ are the chosen and set-apart people of God. 
And I'll just note as well that bringing up these concepts of saintliness and holiness right at the beginning of his letter sets Paul up for his later argument that ascetic practices or extraordinary spiritual experiences will not contribute to anyone's status before God. Before his divine judgment throne, believers will rejoice, but not because of any works that they have done. They will be justified and declared righteous solely based on the works of Christ. So the second way Paul describes the Colossian Christians is as faithful brothers. Now, to be clear, the Greek here is not gender-specific. Brothers, that term translated brothers, refers to all Christians, men and women, who make up one family with God as their father. The Colossian Christians, and we in this room right now, are siblings because we are united by a common faith and a common love in Christ. Now, it was typical for Paul to refer to his recipients of his letters as saints, but he usually didn't call them faithful. So why does Paul add this unusual adjective uh, in this specific letter? Well, it was because of the situation the Colossians were in. He was reminding his readers that they needed to continue holding on to the true gospel they had been taught as their church was planted over against the false teaching that was seeking to enter their community. They needed to remain faithful to the gospel of Christ. Well, next, Paul highlights two locations in which his audience dwells. While their physical location is at Colossae, their spiritual location is in Christ. We can contrast this with Paul's similar language in other letters of being in Adam, that is, being part of the old creation, the sinful world order inaugurated by the fall. To be in Christ, on the other hand, means to be a part of the new creation inaugurated by Jesus' resurrection. We now share in his election, life, atoning death, resurrection, justification, holiness, and glorification. We have received all heavenly blessings in Christ. So we've identified the messenger and the recipients of this letter. And to wrap up this opening section, let's think for a moment about Paul's primary message. And because this is Paul's normal way of opening his letters, it would be easy for us to quickly read these words and move on, missing out on the profound meaning. For Paul, grace and peace is not a catchphrase. Instead, these terms point to the powerful, salvific work of Christ on our behalf. So, let's start by looking at grace. What is grace? In short, grace is God's favor and blessing in the face of human rebellion. It means not only that we haven't earned anything good from God, but we've earned the opposite. According to justice, we deserve punishment. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses and sins. You are saved by grace. That's what grace is. And notice, Paul has acknowledged they've already received God's grace. He's called them saints and faithful brothers. Yet he still prays that God would continue to show his grace to the Colossians in the future. Even the final words of this letter are, grace be with you. So grace is present in Colossians from beginning to end. Paul doesn't want us to miss this. The grace, the unearned favor of God is ours in Christ. So Paul's greeting is not just for the sake of 
being kind or being polite. It's the daily comfort of all believers, and we should rejoice and delight in the wonderful assurance it provides. But Paul not only says grace to you, he says peace. To be at peace with God is a reference to our standing in relationship with him. As Christians, his wrath toward us has been exhausted upon his son, who willingly suffered on our behalf. The righteous indignation provoked by our sin has been forever satisfied in the sufferings of Christ. For the Christian, hear this, brothers and sisters, the judgment for all of your sins, all of your sins, has been exhausted on the cross. Dwelling on this objective peace we have with God can help us greatly as we face times of chaos in this life. A sudden earthquake may destroy my house, but my life is hidden with Christ in God. I may be separated from the people I love, but nothing can separate me from the love of God. A terminal illness may destroy this body, but I have the hope of an incorruptible body in the age to come. An unfaithful spouse may walk out, never to return, but God has promised never to leave us or forsake us. Friends, As his children, we have received true and ultimate peace that can only come from God. And that leads us to the next important point we see in Paul's introduction. The grace and peace come from God, our Father. As believers, we've not only been justified or declared righteous, we've also been adopted. And like justification, adoption is a legal act in which God changes our status from rebel sinners outside of his household, his enemies, to beloved children and heirs of his very kingdom. The same Holy Spirit who regenerates and sanctifies us enables us to come before God boldly as our Father. So after this wonderful opening greeting, Paul moves on to a section of thanksgiving, highlighting especially the gospel and the fruit that is produced in the Colossians. Read with me again verses 3 through the first part of verse 5. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. First of all, notice who Paul is giving thanks to. He doesn't thank the readers for their faith or love. He thanks God. And kids, you might be able to relate to this. Have you ever gotten a present or a gift, maybe for your birthday or Christmas, that you were really, really excited about? Um, I know I have. I remember one Christmas in particular, I received a... um, Uh, a small video camera. I was maybe 12 or 13, and for some reason, I was really looking forward to getting this video camera, and I was really excited on Christmas when I opened the box, and and there it was. And when when it came time to give thanks, I didn't call up my kindergarten teacher or uh, visit my neighbor's house, and I think you know why. It's because they're not the ones who got the gift for me. When we're thankful for something, We express that thanks only to the people who are responsible for whatever gift or blessing it is that we're thankful for. So the fact that Paul directs his thanks to God goes to show that it wasn't the Colossians' own efforts that earned God's grace or peace or any blessing. 
Rather, everything good about their Christian lives was the result of God's free grace. And if we're honest with ourselves, this can sometimes bother us. We like to think that, you know, in and of ourselves we're worthy, or because of something we've done, we should earn something good. When something good happens to us, we like to think that we were responsible for it. But think of the security that we have in the gospel. God's disposition toward us never changes as our own emotions do. You know, for us, one moment we could be feeling on top of the world and and swelling with pride, and the next we might feel as though we are worthless. But God is always pleased with us in Christ. Even though we have what we might call good days and, and bad days, our standing with our Father in heaven never changes due to our behavior or performance. There's great rest in this truth. Because it is God who brings grace and peace, who produces faith, hope, and love, we can relax and enjoy the rest of a life secure in Christ. So Paul is giving thanks to God, and the remaining verses in this passage describe his reasons for that thanksgiving. And the first one mentioned is the gospel fruit that has grown in the Colossian church. Three familiar qualities we often see grouped together in scripture. Faith, love, and hope. And the first Paul mentions is faith in Christ Jesus. This word faith, as we know, means a wholehearted trust in Jesus Christ. Again, this is not a virtue we can boast about. Paul insists that faith is an act of God, which he makes clear in Ephesians 2.8 and other places. We didn't muster up this faith or draw it from deep within ourselves. God has given us a heart that is able to wholly trust in his son, and we should be thankful to him for that grace. The second gospel fruit Paul thanks God for is love for all the saints. And as we saw again in verse 2, saints doesn't mean an elite class of extra holy Christians, but rather everyone who is in Christ, all Christians, all believers. And so notice Paul isn't talking about love to all people here. He's talking about a particular love shown by the people of God for the people of God. Now, love to everybody is not ruled out. We, we should be loving to everybody, even our enemies, as Jesus teaches us. But as members of Christ's body, we cannot consider our church to be simply a community group or a social club. Our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ are not people with whom we share certain interests with, although that may be true. But ultimately and foundationally, they are our siblings in Christ. And as siblings in one family with one father, we must show kindness and generosity to one another, regardless of our differences or our many real weaknesses. As Chris said last week, we do not love transactionally. We love freely and liberally because that is how we have been loved. We don't wait until our brothers and sisters do something for us that we deem suitably loving enough to reciprocate. No, friends. In our words and deeds, we serve one another willingly, helping in times of need, sympathizing in times of pain, mourning in times of sorrow, and rejoicing in times of celebration, all without any expectation of being repaid. Christian brothers and sisters intend every action to bring benefit to others. Now, from this description, it should be clear that this kind of love 
is not innate in the human heart. By nature, we are selfish and guarded and captivated with our own concerns. If we are to love as we have been loved, it must happen in the spirit, which Paul clarifies at the very end of our passage in verse 8. We love as the spirit turns our thoughts outward, away from ourselves. We love as the spirit overcomes our tendency to harbor bitterness and hold grudges against those who have hurt us. And we love most of all as the spirit reminds us of Christ's love for us. Now, here we come to the third gospel fruit that Paul mentions has produced in the Colossians' lives, hope. Looking at verse 5 calls into question a common objection that you may have heard levied against some Christians. Those people are so heavenly-minded, they're of no earthly good. Well, actually, Paul says that it was because of a heavenly hope that faith and love flourished in Colossae. Carefully considering our heavenly future changes the way we live in our earthly present. And I want you to notice as well the nature of the hope here. It doesn't refer to an inner attitude of wishful thinking, but to a definite, external, certain object. So when we typically think of hope, we think of something more like a a school child waiting to hear if tomorrow will be a snow day. And I know you don't have those here in uh, sunny San Diego County, but uh, if you have family in other states, you might know what I'm talking about. So as kids growing up in Missouri, we had this season called winter. And uh, sometimes in winter, we would uh, stay up late intently staring at the television screen, just watching names of schools scroll by on the bottom, just hoping that we would see our school's name listed there. Because if it was, that meant no school tomorrow. We didn't know for sure if school would be canceled, but we really, really, really wanted it to be. That's not the kind of hope Paul is talking about here. So if we stick with the snow day analogy, the kind of hope Paul is talking about would be more like already receiving the news that school is canceled tomorrow. It snowed so much you don't have to go. And just looking forward to the reality of living in that day off. So, brothers and sisters, the hope Paul is concerned with is not located in your heart. Rather, it's laid up for you in heaven. So what exactly is our Christian hope? In short, it's resurrection life. We confidently expect the future resurrection, and not only the resurrection, but all of its accompanying benefits, namely the new heavens and new earth. The full possession and enjoyment of this hope is something we can eagerly long for, but with calm certainty, knowing that our God always fulfills his promises. So having thanked God for the fruits of faith, hope, and love, Paul goes on to thank God for the gospel that caused those fruits to grow. Paul uses the phrase in verse 6, the word of truth, the gospel, which we could paraphrase this way, the true word which is the gospel. This gospel originated from the God of truth, was inspired by the spirit of truth, concerning the Christ of truth, and containing nothing but truth. And Paul is emphasizing this concept of truth, especially in this letter, in order to show the Colossian church that the gospel they received in the beginning, as as Epaphras was planting their church, was the true gospel. It was genuinely from God 
as opposed to the false teaching that was now trying to infiltrate. Paul also thanks God for the success of the gospel. Let's reread verse 6. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Paul here is emphasizing the power of the gospel to accomplish God's salvific will, not only in Colossae, but in the whole world. Now, we have to understand that Paul is not trying to make a geographically literal statement. It's not as if already by AD 60, missionaries had preached the gospel in all 57 million square miles of the planet. Instead, when Paul uses world, he's speaking similarly to the way we sometimes talk about the already not yet kingdom of God. Just as the gospel has already come to the Mediterranean world, it will eventually come with absolute certainty to all nations. Finally, in verse 7, Paul identifies the one who brought this gospel to the Colossians as Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. This terminology of servant, or really slave of Christ, communicates a couple of things. First, it speaks to the fact that Paul views himself and Epaphras and all ministers of the gospel as merely instruments in the hand of God who powerfully works through them. Second, Paul does not view Epaphras as an inferior or a rival, but as a partner in the gospel ministry. And he not only calls Epaphras a fellow slave, but also a faithful minister of Christ on the Colossians' behalf. Epaphras was not chasing a name for himself, but seeking to magnify the name of his God. And he was a minister, Paul says, for you, on your behalf. In other words, Epaphras was laboring with the church's best interests in mind and for their spiritual gain. Let's pray that ministers in our day have the same non-competitive, mutually encouraging attitude toward one another, that we all may labor for the glory of Christ and the good of his church without concern for ourselves. And that brings us to the end of these first eight verses of the epistle. So what have we seen tonight in Paul's introduction? First, we saw that Paul was delivering a message from God. He is an apostle of God commissioned by Christ himself to bring the very words of God. This letter carries divine authority. And the primary message, Paul's constant prayer for the Colossians, is grace and peace. Two words that point us to the accomplished salvific work of Christ. And finally, Paul gives thanks for the gospel, for the one who brought it, and for the gospel fruit that it was producing in the Colossians' lives. Faith, hope, and love. These causes for thanksgiving and celebration in the Colossian church are also causes for thanksgiving and celebration in our church, in every church. We, too, are saints God's chosen and set-apart people. We, too, have been adopted into his family as brothers and sisters with one heavenly Father. We, too, are in Christ, members of the new creation and recipients of all heavenly blessings. We, too, have received God's grace. He has shown us immeasurable favor when all we deserved was eternal punishment. And we, too, have peace. Our standing with God is forever secure because Jesus suffered in our place. Let us daily celebrate this good news and give thanks to our God. Brothers and sisters, 
Because of the gospel, we have a hope stored up for us in heaven, which which leads us to express our faith in Christ and our love for one another. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we're so grateful for your word that as we read it and hear it, we can be certain that it comes from you. We thank you for the messengers who have brought us the gospel and those who continue to do so. And we ask that you would bless them. We thank you for your grace and peace that you have granted us every spiritual blessing in Christ, even adopting us as your own children, despite our cosmic treason against you. We only deserve your punishment, but you have showed us your favor. And we thank you also for giving us faith in Christ, for sending your Holy Spirit to cause us to love one another and sacrificially and freely, and for the hope that we have in heaven, the promise of resurrection life. We look forward eagerly to the new heavens and new earth with certainty, but help us until that hope is realized to continue to live in love for our brothers and sisters as well as our neighbors. Amen.